Thank you for downloading the African Studies Seminar podcast, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center. Okay, many thanks, Devon. Uh, thank you to everybody for coming up this evening. Um, this, of course, is Cape Town up on the board, and that's Table Bay that you see before you, which we'll come back into this talk on several occasions. What I want to talk about tonight is this slave ship, the Progressor, which was captured by a British warship, HMS Cleopatra, in April um, 1843 off Kelamani in Mozambique. Now, in recent years, a, a small book by somebody called Pasco Hill uh, has become almost a small classic in the field of slave studies. It's a book called 50, uh, 50 Days on Board a Slave Vessel in the Mozambique Channel, April to May 1843, and it was written at that time. In 1993, the Black Classic Press reissued the work, just short of the 150th <coughs> anniversary of the initial publication of this small work. It's subsequently been translated into Portuguese, and it's been republished in English by a publishing house in the Caribbean on two occasions in the last five or six years. The various copies of the book that are available on the net, so you don't have to go off and buy it. And just last year, uh, an essay appeared in Slavery and Abolition on this ship, The Progressor. So it's, it's, it's quite a well-known case. But what I want to do this evening is to look at the ways in which the case of the capture of one particular slave ship can be used by a historian. This is really the second half of my talk, and what I'd like to start off with is to contextualise the capturing of this ship in the history of the Cape's relationship with the transatlantic slave trade, which is a rather hidden history, I think. So my, for the first half of my talk is on the Cape and the transatlantic slave trade. Now, for many around this table, uh, they will uh, hopefully see this as almost an oxymoron, Cape Town and the transatlantic slave trade. It's generally thought that Cape Town had nothing to do with the transatlantic slave trade. But the transatlantic slave trade affected West Africa and Central West Africa, particularly in the 17th and the 18th century. And that by the time the British took the Cape in January 1806, the second British occupation, um, they, the British, were just about to introduce the Act of Abolition in 1807, which then prevented any form of slave trade uh, around the Cape and contact with the Cape. Um, and this is something that's picked up in most of the literature on abolition, including Seymour Drescher's recent book. Yet, if one looks more closely at the Cape, one sees that the Cape and Table Bay served as a halfway house for many slave ships for 14 years after the implementation of abolition in 1808. Ships carrying slaves from Mozambique to Brazil and Cuba entered a particularly long middle passage that took on average around 70 days to get from Mozambique to Brazil. And many of these ships stopped at the Cape to take on fresh water, to take on food and to undergo repairs. With as many as 500 slaves on board some of these ships, captains had to reduce the mortality on their ships, and they depended on the speed with which they got to the Americas to do this, and on their ability to provide the slaves with fresh water and food on the way to Brazil. So repairs and provisions were crucial to bring down the mortality rate on these ships. Mozambique had, in fact, um, exported small numbers of slaves for many years to the Portuguese possessions in India, but by the 1770s, the French started to grow sugar in the Mascarene Islands, uh, Mauritius and Reunion today, and this created a, a sudden new market for slaves, for Mozambican slaves. By the end of the 1780s, about three to 4,000 slaves were being taken from Mozambique to Mauritius and Reunion. And a small community of slave traders started to emerge at Mozambique at this time, uh, men who made their money out of the slave trade with Mauritius. But they also invested a small part of their profits in the slave trade to the Caribbean, 
1785, I've come across a ship making its way around the Cape to Saint-Domingue, um, and then increasingly by the 1790s, quite a large number <coughs> of ships going to Rio de la Plata, and a very few to Brazil at this time in the 1790s. Several of these ships stopped at Cape Town before crossing the Atlantic. They stopped to take on water and food to bring about repairs, but also to sell slaves, to sell slaves that would pay for these services that provi were provided in Table Bay, or perhaps to just rid themselves of sick and unwell slaves who wouldn't have survived the Atlantic crossing. And a few of these ships disembarked all of their human cargo um, at Cape Town. By the end of the 1790s, the numbers of slaves entering Cape Town along this route had grown to such an extent that the governor made their importation without permission a punishable offence, which was in 1798. But this trade in slaves from Mauritius, uh, from, from Mozambique, swung massively away from Mauritius and towards the Americas during the first decade of the 19th century. This was largely due to the war in the Indian Ocean, the Napoleonic Wars, due to the British blockading Mauritius between 1808 and 1810, and this caused French traders to sell their ships to some of these Mozambican traders who invested more heavily in the slave trade to Brazil. The British capture of Mauritius eventually at the end of 1810 also emphasized this movement <coughs> because Britain then outlawed the formal trade in slaves with that island. But what really caused the Mozambican slave trade to swing away from Mauritius and towards Brazil was a treaty entered into by Britain and Portugal in 1810. And this treaty severely restricted Portugal slaving activities north of the equator, in other words, from West Africa, they still could trade from Weeda and one or two small points, but in general, it suppressed the Portuguese slave trade from West Africa. But at the same time, it recognized or it even encouraged Portugal's legal right to shift huge numbers of forced laborers from its African colonies, Mozambique and Angola, south of the equator, to its great American colony, Brazil. Now, although the British Parliament was opposed to the slave trade, Britain was, of course, at this stage, 1810, allied with Portugal in the war against France. And Britain had to, in many ways, support the economic development of the Portuguese Empire to maintain that alliance uh, with Portugal. Hence, the support for the slave trade south of the equator indeed for what was really a monopoly given to Portugal to transport slaves from Angola, but for us from Mozambique, to her colony of Brazil. But the question that, of course, I ask is what did this British support for the slave trade around the southern tip of Africa mean for Cape Town, perched midway between Mozambique and Brazil? During the summer, slave season, because most of the slaves were shifted in that uh, December, January, February period, <coughs> it was possible to find several large slave ships riding at anchor in Table Bay at one moment. Ships with several hundred slaves in their holds. These ships were a source of revenue and a source of labor for the Cape. Ships, for instance, were fined for breaking laws at the Cape by importing slaves illegally or by exporting the proceeds of the sale of those slaves in hard currency. This was against uh, local laws and the ship could be impounded. Um, the captain would be forced to pay a fine. Other slaves were brought in as prizes of war, uh, ships captured by the Royal Navy and captains and their crews and the Admiral received a bounty for this under the 1807 Act. That 1807 Act, which gave 40 pounds to each slave captured, each male slave, 30 pounds to every woman, and I think it was 10 pounds to each child. So a series of court cases in Cape Town was brought before the were brought before the Vice Admiralty Court, and these court cases led to the importation of just over 4,000 slaves from Mozambique to the Cape 
during the second British occupation. That means the 12 years after January 1806. Uh, these slaves were um, liberated at the Cape and placed under very strict 14-year indentures. But the seizure of these Portuguese slave ships and the assistance given to many other Portuguese slave ships produced a, an interesting legal conundrum at the Cape. In 1812, for instance, the colonial office expressed its opposition to the arrival of these ships in Table Bay. And in November of that year, uh, 1812, the governor, Sir John Craddock, issued a proclamation prohibiting slave ships from entering Table Bay unless uh, they entered the bay in cases of what he called extreme necessity. But that was the colonial office. The foreign office had to respond in a very different way to a different set of interests. Portugal was Britain's ally in the war in 1812, and assistance <coughs> had to be given to Portuguese ships because of this. Perhaps most importantly, the foreign office had to protect the law of the sea, international law, uh, which gave respect to the sovereignty of vessels, even slave vessels, um, and which, of course, uh, pushed away the violence and lawlessness that normally comes with the oceans, those oceans that Britain was starting to dominate by 1812. This, of course, was a, a, a view supported by the Admiralty, which had a duty to assist ships in distress, even slave ships. And one finds in 1812 a discourse starting to emerge in the Foreign Office about the ransoming of Portuguese slave ships at the Cape, that the Cape was holding these slave ships to ransom in order to make money out of them or to force these labourers to disembark at the Cape and enter into these long apprenticeships. The contradiction in the set of interests represented by these different government departments came to a head in January 1813. In that month, January 1813, there were five slave ships at anchor in Table Bay with over 1,500 slaves in their holds. Now let's remember Cape Town is a small port with about 16,000 in its population, a population of perhaps 7,000 free people out of those 16,000. These five slave ships had 1,500 slaves out in the bay. Two of these ships were held back, for, for reasons that I haven't uh, yet found, they were held back by the authorities of the Cape by depriving them of water and of food. And the one ship was then brought in and um, it was brought before the Vice Admiralty Court and the 432 slaves in its hold were then um, uh, freed and placed under an indenture. But the other ship, tried to make a break for it. It bolted. It didn't want to be brought before the Vice Admiralty Court. And it left Table Bay with no food and no water and large numbers of slaves in its hold. The upshot of this was that 80% of the slaves on board the ship died on the way to Rio de Janeiro. And this human tragedy, because of course that's what it was, was soon brought to the notice of the Foreign Office, very largely through the British ambassador in Rio de Janeiro. And the Foreign Office by this stage, January 1813, was talking of the molestation, the molestation of Portuguese <coughs> ships at the Cape by the Navy, by the Royal Navy. And at this stage, towards the end of 1813, the Foreign Office issued a notice to the Admiralty calling on the Admiralty to stop interfering with Portuguese slave ships stopping at the Cape. It's at this time, at the end of 1813, that Lord Consulry produced a list of rules controlling when Portuguese ships could be seized legally by the Royal Navy or by the authorities in Table Bay on the shore. This all contributed in one way or another to the production of another Anglo-Portuguese Treaty, signed in January 1817, a treaty that aimed to keep the seizure of Portuguese ships strictly within the law, to, to, to impress on the Royal Navy to not break the law in the law of the sea in seizing these ships. 
And this introduced <coughs> the 1817 treaty, a mutual right of search between Portugal and Britain, which in fact uh, meant, of course, that the Royal Navy could stop and search Portuguese ships and seize them if they were carrying slaves north of the equator, not south of the equator, only north of the equator. It also created a series of international courts or mixed commissions made up of Portuguese and British judges in Freetown, the British colony in Africa, the other British colony in Africa, and in Rio de Janeiro, the Portuguese colony. These courts were made up of British and Portuguese judges who together decided on whether to condemn a Portuguese ship for participating in the slave trade strictly within the law. Another mixed commission that's often overlooked was also set up in London, a mixed commission before which Portuguese ship owners could lay claims for indemnity in the case of their ships being illegally seized. And at the same time as setting up these courts, Britain promised to compensate the owners of Portuguese ships that had been seized during the war. The uh, treaty also outlined the conditions under which Portuguese ships could be seized, picking up on Lord Castlereagh's rules. Um, so they could not, Portuguese ships, for instance, be seized within the roadstead of a port. They couldn't be seized within the range of the shore batteries of a port. Or it was only ships carrying slaves that could be captured by uh, the Navy and brought before the mixed commissions. So again, how was this legal situation played out at the Cape? I asked myself. But let's look at uh, two, uh, two slave ships. A warship brought the Sao Joachim and 285 slaves into Cape Town at this time. The ship was condemned by the Vice Admiralty Court and the owners then took this case to the Mixed Commission in London the Mixed Commission paid an indemnity of £15,750 to the owner of the ship. That was covered by the Naval Treasury, but in future, ships' captains, i.e. naval officers, were going to have to pay this kind of money if they transgressed the law. Just after this, a merchantman uh, called the Atlas uh, was going out, uh, had just left Table Bay, <coughs> came across a slave ship called the Flor de Bahia, with 389 slaves on board in February 1818. And it seized the floor de Bahia because the captain of the Atlas felt that somehow or other he would be able to uh, get some of the bounty money for the seizure of the ship. Um, and that was turned down. Uh, it was seen as an illegal seizure. But the dispute over the capturing of the floor de Bahia led to a discussion about the appalling conditions in that particular ship. And of course, we can look at all of these ships that have been coming through. 20% of the slaves had died since leaving Mozambique in the Flor de Bahia, and others continued to die as the ship lay at anchor in Table Bay. 51 sick slaves were brought ashore, and 18 of them died within a few days. Those who survived were sent back into the stinking and pestiferous hold of the ship under such awful conditions that they couldn't even lie straight and the ship was anchored in Table Bay. The conditions on the Saint-Joachim were even worse. The slaves were kept naked in that ship on rough planks, not, not a deck, but rough planks that were placed over the water and food in the barrels beneath those planks. 92 of them had dysentery when the ship was brought into Table Bay. And many, many of them were shackled uh, to, to the deck. And the deck was hardly two feet high of this Saint-Joachim. So again, the question arises, how much aid should have been given to those ships and their human cargoes by the authorities of the Cape? What responsibility lay with the Cape to keep slaves alive during the long middle passage from Mozambique and across the Atlantic Ocean? And should slaves that had landed on colonial soil 
be sent back into slavery, as was the case with the slaves on the floor de Bahia, who had been on Cape soil, British soil, and had been sent then into slavery in Brazil. These sorts of questions were important, but it became imperative two months later when yet another slave ship came in, the Paquet Real. It arrived in Table Bay in what was called a decayed state by the authorities. The vessel had taken, and this was quite common, though perhaps more than the usual, it had taken 64 days to get from Mozambique, uh, the uh, capital Mozambique Island, to Table Bay. 22% of the slaves had died on that voyage, and another 11 died as the ship lay in Table Bay, within sight of Cape Town. The ship was late in coming round the Cape. This was the very end of summer, it was April, it was coming around the Cape, and it was kept in Table Bay by the authorities, and one of the great winter storms came out of the Atlantic and in May smashed the Paquet Real on the shore. 24 slaves died and 140 survived that wreck. But the question now was, again, this legal conundrum, what to do with these slaves? Um, they'd been washed onto the shore in Cape Town. Should they be sent to Brazil from a British colonial court? And for instance, who would pay for their upkeep until it was decided what should happen to them? Should they become government slaves, as the fiscal said, because they hadn't been condemned as a prize, they'd been washed onto the shore, in essence, or should they be indentured for seven years because they were pro the product of a natural hazard, which is what the governor wanted, or should they be apprenticed for 14 years, as with the prize slaves, but they weren't prize slaves, they'd been washed on shore. So this again led to a lively debate at the Cape about the responsibility for uh, the slave trade, what uh, aid and assistance should be given to these slave ships. And this debate went right up to Whitehall, where the King's advocate took uh, various clear, but unfortunately contradictory decisions, uh, various advocates in the uh, King's office. In the meantime, a French ship had been captured in the, um, uh, off, off Sierra Leone, and for various reasons, it had been taken down to the Cape. It was uh, brought before the Vice Admiralty Court. It was then sold to the Cape government, which used it uh, to communicate with the eastern frontier, just as the 1820 settlers arrived. And it was then ordered the Cape government to sell that ship and take it to Bourbon, or a union, where the French would uh, judge whether the ship had been involved in the slave trade. A Spanish ship at this time um, came in, it was the third Spanish ship in, in two weeks to come in, and they were obviously uh, uh, pushing the case of extreme need, and what the Cape authorities did with that ship was to give it just sufficient water to get it back to Zanzibar, because it had come from Zanzibar, from north of Mozambique, um, or perhaps sufficient water to get it to Tristan de Cunha, but not enough to get it to Cuba, the Spanish colony on the other side of the Atlantic. So by this time, the early 1820s, the fortunes of the abolition, abolitionist movement were in the ascendant, uh, particularly here in Britain. In 1817, let's remember, Portugal had agreed to allow British warships to search its vessels for slaves in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Spain agreed to this as well in 1817. These were the two great slave trading nations by this time. And in 1820, Spain outlawed the slave trade with um, not much result. Brazil agreed to a right of search in 1822 when it won its independence from Portugal and treaties were signed with various African leaders at this time, Madagascar and uh, the Omani leader in Zanzibar. In Britain, the surge of support for abolition produced the Society for the Mitigation and Gradual Abolition of Slavery in 1823, and I think it was three months later, the first great anti-slavery petition was brought before Parliament. And it was in this political climate in the Metropole that the Slave Trade Consolidation Act was passed in 1824. And this act, 1824, outlawed British ports from supplying slave ships with assistance of any kind, 
Slave ships in distress could be assisted at sea, but they could no longer come into port. And this ended the uh, visitations to Table Bay by these slave ships. The last two slave ships to enter Table Bay were in 1821 and 1822, a Portuguese and a Spanish ship. Most importantly, the Admiralty's watchdog in London, the Anglo-Portuguese Mixed Commission, penalised any warship, or rather its captain, that illegally captured a Portuguese slaver. This meant that the Royal Navy had very little power in the 1820s to seize Portuguese slave ships south of the equator, <coughs> or if it did, the ships had to be handed to the Portuguese governor to be judged, and the Portuguese governor just added <coughs> the slaves to those he already owned. So what we were looking at in the 1820s was the quiescence, <coughs> really, of the Royal Navy in the face of the slave trade from Mozambique. There were very rare patrols from Simonstown along the Mozambican coast during those years in the 1820s, and it was phenomenally frustrating for naval officers to engage in those patrols because they saw the slave trade growing enormously in Mozambique, a very legal slave trade supported by Britain between Mozambique and Brazil. On a very few occasions, they seized French slave ships and took them to Bourbon. In fact, I've only found two cases like that. But while the Admiralty played a very limited or quiescent role during these years, the Foreign Office attempted to pressure and cajole Portugal into outlawing the slave trade and tried to bring Spain to implement its formal abolition of the slave trade. And this strategy really worked, or it achieved one of its major objectives, in 1835, when Britain and Spain signed a, an equipment clause. And this equipment clause allowed British warships to impound Spanish vessels merely on suspicion of participating in the slave trade. That meant if they were found with the equipment of the slave trade, they could be captured and brought before a mixed commission. That meant if they, the ship had hatches with open grates, if it had extra decks or the planks needed to construct those decks, if it had iron shackles or bolts on board or excessive amounts of water or food or, or, or even large amounts of specie and cloth needed to buy slaves, that ship could be seized by the Royal Navy and then taken into before a mixed commission of Spain and Britain. This put new pressure on Portugal and the Portuguese the Liberal government, long story, eventually abolished the slave trade in 1836. The only thing was that it was one thing to abolish the slave trade in Lisbon, it was another thing to implement that abolition in a colony like Mozambique, where the administration was almost entirely dependent on the slave trade for its revenue. And this brought the Royal Navy, working out of Simonstown, back into the fray when a young lieutenant felt he now had the right, this is in 1836, he now had the right to attack and seize two Spanish ships in Mozambique Harbour, in the harbour just behind Mozambique Island. This was something that was strictly prohibited by the 1817 treaty, but he thought that now with the equipment clause and uh, Portugal's abolition of slavery theoretically in 1836, he could do this. And so he took his ship on two occasions right into Mozambique Harbour and stormed two very large Spanish ships. Um, the Portuguese then fired on his ship. He had to surrender to the Portuguese. And this was a real international incident for which Lord Palmerston had to apologise to the Portuguese. <laughs> Not very frequent. And it led directly to the passage through Parliament in 1839 of the Equipment Clause against the Portuguese that ignored the sovereignty of Portugal. In other words, it was the British Parliament, not an Anglo-Portuguese treaty. It was the British Parliament that passed that Equipment Clause <coughs> that allowed Britain to seize Portuguese ships merely when they were equipped for the slave trade, and in both the Southern and the Northern Hemispheres. 
And this came at a propitious time. It came just as slavery as an institution had been finally abolished at the Cape in 1838. It also came just as the British government upped the bounty on slaves captured by the Navy. And it came just as the colonial office was trying to cut its costs in Sierra Leone. And so almost overnight in 1839, Cape Town became the major site for the anti-slavery movement in the Atlantic Ocean, and it remained this for the next four years. During those next four to five years, basically 1839 to 1844, the Royal Navy brought over 4,000 slaves into Cape Town, slaves which were captured in ships off the Mozambican coast. The long middle passage, um, it seems to me, evidently formed a, a, a part of South African history. And for me, of course, what interests me is that the ancestors of many South Africans experienced the full horror of a slave ship. These slave ships deposited probably about 10,000 slaves at the Cape between January 1806 and uh, the end of the 1840s. This, the horror of these slave ships was recounted sometimes in very brief descriptions of life in those ships, like the Sao Joachim or the Flor de Bahia. But it's very difficult to find descriptions of daily life on board a slave ship, partly because the people who wrote about life on the slave ships were the slavers themselves, and they turned it into a great adventure, the slaving expedition. Um, Robert Harms has written about this, of course, the difficulties of writing this kind of history. Marcus Fink, more, uh, more recently, has written about this in his book on the slave ship. But this deals with an earlier period. And to me, this is where the capture of a slave ship like the Progresso becomes emblematic, because Pascoe Hill's book does take the reader into the hold of a slave ship. The logbook of HMS Cleopatra, which seized the Progresso <coughs> in April 1843, shows that the warship caught up with the brig just outside Kelimani. Um, shots were fired across the bow, and a boarding party was prepared. Uh, the two ships came together. The British boarding party came on board the Progresso and found 450 slaves um, in the ship. 450 slaves and a crew of 17, largely Portuguese sailors. The captain of the uh, uh, Cleopatra ordered the crew and the, and the slaver to be placed in the custody of the Cleopatra. And then once he had examined the slaves, demanded that 50 of their number be transshipped to his warship for various reasons. He then sent a very young lieutenant, a lieutenant who had been raised to the rank of the lieutenant just four months before on board the ship to act as the captain of the prize crew that would take this ship, the Progresso, down to Cape Town. He was helped by 11 sailors and three of the slave crew. Now, a, a mixed commission had eventually been established in Cape Town in 1843, a year after Portugal eventually had accepted the Equipment Clause. Remember that Equipment Clause, 1839, was accepted by Portugal in 1842, and part of that agreement was to allow a mixed commission to be established in Cape Town. And the capture of the Progresso by HMS Cleopatra formed the substance of one of the first reports of the mixed commission in Cape Town, one of its first reports, to the Foreign Office. Um, and the report says, we regret to have to report, this is the 10th of October, 1843, that owing to the crowded and diseased state in which the Negroes were when captured on the Progresso, and the bad weather which delayed their arrival, only 207 of the poor creatures, out of 450, lived to benefit by the decision of the Vice Admiralty Court. 177 of 450 died on the Progresso on the way south, and 63 more died after being landed. And they continued, the survivors have been all distributed under the apprenticeship system, with the exception of two men 
who are still in the hospital. So in this way, the commissioners gave notice of the high death rate on the ship, which was nothing really unusual if you look carefully at these ships. And they supplied some perfunctory reasons for it. It was crowded. Um, it was riddled with disease, the, the slave uh, cargo. And then they concluded their short report on a positive note. These survivors had been apprenticed and they would be looked after under the British authorities. And so the case was duly filed away and it was forgotten until suddenly in January of 1844, Pasco Hill's explosive account of life on board the ship, the Progresso, um, was brought out. So let me say a bit about Hill's account. He talks about uh, not 450, but 447 slaves <coughs> being packed into the ship. It weighed only 140 tons, 444 slaves in a 140 ton ship. Its deck was 46 feet long, was 25 feet wide, and three foot six inches high. Saint-Jean-Him, remember, was only two feet high, its deck. There were 189 men, 45 women, and 216 boys, 213 boys, in the Progresso. And this human cargo was worth about 19,000 pounds in Brazil. Hill describes that as the British warship approached the Progresso, its crew allowed the slaves to break out of the hold of the ship. So when the British sailors arrived on board the Progresso, the ship was in some confusion as the slaves, starved of both water and food, had broken open the barrels of water and food and in their extreme distress had started to drink seawater, raw alcohol, and to eat live chickens, literally. While some 50 members of the slave crew, uh, of the uh, slave cargo, were transferred to the Cleopatra, <clears throat> the others were left on the Progresso under the charge of this young lieutenant, Alexander, and a few sailors. This meant that the ship remained severely overloaded, and that night, when the weather turned bad, and the sails had to be brought down by the sailors, the slaves on the deck, because that's where they'd been brought onto, started to get into the, in the way of the sailors. And the young lieutenant then had to clear the deck and force the slaves back into the confines of the hold, this terrible hold in which they had been held and so many had died. This led to pandemonium in the hold, as the slaves had to reoccupy the stinking hole in which they experienced so much fear and misery. Many, of course, believed that they'd again lost their freedom. Uh, they were deprived of their access to food and water uh, because they were sitting on the planks over the food and the water so that nobody could get at that food and water. And several of them believed, as was common at that time, that they were going to be eaten as slaves. Mm -hmm. This led to a terrible wailing and crying below deck. And when the men attempted to force open one of the hatches, the slaves below tried to force open one of the hatches, the crew had to hold the hatch down and 54 of the slaves died in trying to get out of the hold of this ship. And the Reverend Hill, Pasco Hill, he's the chaplain on the ship, noted all of this in his diary, as well as the state of the mangled bodies that were brought up onto the deck and then thrown over the side of the ship. He then documented the horror of the trip to Cape Town as over 50 days, the slaves started to die. The women, men and children in the hold had been marched overland from deep in the interior of Central Africa and they'd been kept at barracoons at Angosh, just to the north of Keliman, and then they'd been brought down to Keliman, where they'd been kept in other barracoons. And in fact, the slave captain had refused to take 50 of the slaves because they were in such bad condition. He had refused an extra 50 on top of the 447. Those who were brought on board the ship suffered from craw crawl, this terrible uh, skin disease, and particularly from dysentery, the main problem that dehydrated them and brought on a very rapid death. They also fought with each other in the hold um, as the ship made its way south and 
when eventually several men made their way, they broke into the barrels of water and food, they were taken out of the hold and flogged by the crew. This, of course, was now the crew of the Royal Navy in charge of this ship. The slaves were almost naked, and as the ship inched southwards, they suffered increasingly from the autumn cold. Um, April is moving rapidly into May, and May is now moving into June. The vessel took 50 days to get to Sinestown, a naval base near Cape Town, by which time, as I've said, 177 slaves had died, and the slaves were in such terrible condition that when they were disembarked at Sinestown, another 63 died. Now, Hill was fluent in Portuguese. Um, his cousin was a, an admiral in the Brazilian Navy. He was able to speak to the slavers, which was very important. And he also had literary ambitions. He went on to publish poetry and to publish two or three other books. And uh, he came from a literary family. Uh, two of his cousins were <coughs> to uh, men who would become Regis professors of history at both Oxford and Cambridge. He's the only naval chaplain to have found a place in the Dictionary <coughs> of National Biography. But as a chaplain, he was in a special position because he was able to maintain a certain distance from the officers on the Cleopatra. He didn't have the same loyalty to the officer corps as the other uh, officers. So his book is powerful because of the narrative. It's written in the form of a diary. He did keep a diary, but he kept it in that shape. So it's written very much in terms of the present tense, in a way that <clears throat> created a very day-by-day -day realism. So he writes of one dead this morning, there are three in a dying state. He continues to write in that way. He used a great deal of Gothic imagery. There was disaster, darkness, he talks about. One stage there's a great deal of thunder and lightning. Uh, there's despair everywhere, he writes. And then ensued a scene, the horrors of which it is impossible to depict. There's a great deal of this Gothic imagery in the book. But the real object of Hill's account was the Royal Navy, to criticise the Royal Navy, which didn't know how to keep slaves alive, unlike the slavers, who could keep slaves alive. And it was this criticism of the Royal Navy that brought the case of the Progressor to public attention. It wasn't just another account of a slave voyage, it was rather a particularly well-documented story of life on a slave ship as it made its way to the Cape, but with a sting in its tail. And that sting was the criticism of the Royal Navy and the inability of the Navy to look after these slaves once they had captured them. And this caused the case of the Progressor to be extensively reported in the press, both here in Britain and in the Cape. Critics used the case of the Progressor to attack the government's policy of using the Royal Navy to suppress the slave trade, policy that was very costly indeed, and that was also, of course, costly in terms of lives of sailors, particularly in West Africa, in the tropical areas who died from malaria. The case of the Progresso also led to an extensive correspondence between the Foreign Office and the Admiralty yet again. The Foreign Office, which accused the Admiralty of endangering the treaty system, which it was cobbling together, by failing to look after the slaves in its charge. And this led to an exchange of letters between Captain Wyville, the captain of the Cleopatra, and his superiors. Uh, letters in which Wyville reported extensively on the experiences of <clears throat> his prize crew on the Progresso and defended particularly the honour of the young Lieutenant Alexander. And it eventually led to an investigation of the incident where the members of the prize crew were brought before Captain Weigel to give their accounts of the uh, trip to the Cape. Much of this um, uh, investigation <coughs> exonerated the Royal Navy of any blame for the high slave mortality on the ship. But in the process, it contradicted parts of Hill's small book, because of course many of these officers felt that Hill had um, 
personal account uh, to, 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 to square with them, and um, they contradicted parts of what he had written. And it also brought to light the tensions within the close wooden world of a British ship, the position of a naval chaplain being very different from that of the young officers uh, in this warship, a large warship, a 26-gun warship of 916 tons. It also provided this, um, this evidence, information on the bounty eventually paid for the capture of the Progressor. Eventually, in December 1846, Captain Wyville was paid £118 for capturing the ship. £63 went to the commander of the squadron at the Cape, and about £50 was distributed to the crew. And the ship was eventually bought by the Navy as a hulk for £170. But the documentation arising out of the case of the Progressor particularly provides evidence about the lives of the human beings who made up a small part of the stream of forced labour being brought to the Cape during the Second British Occupation. Um, I think it reflects on the lives of these 10,000 forced immigrants into the Cape from Mozambique. Because not only in Hill's book, but in much of the evidence that came out around Hill's book, there's a great deal of evidence on the physical condition of a slave ship. So, for instance, the Progressor had no slave deck. And why it didn't have a slave deck was because it kept planks, um, which it could fashion into a deck, but those planks could also be thrown overboard if it was being chased by a British ship. They could hide the equipment of the slave trade. But those planks were bare, and again they were placed over the barrels <coughs> of water and food in the hold of the ship. In the hold of the ship were women and men were in separate compartments. The evidence also talked about the ship's canvas, the sails of the ship, which were torn and its rigging was in a very poor condition, which perhaps explains one of the reasons why it took such a long time to get to the Cape. The, the evidence talks about the food and the rations given to the slaves, about how to keep a slave alive. Um, and it becomes evident that many of the slaves were embarked, certainly on the progressor, in a very weak condition after having been marched through the interior, kept for many weeks in these barracoons. And when they came onto the ship, they were physically weak. They were then confronted by new sources of food, new uh, a new diet, <coughs> which would, uh, in many cases, produce dysentery. And if you didn't give the exact amount of water to the slave, you could kill a slave, according to the evidence, very easily by giving too much water to the slave. Um, and so uh, a small amount, it was half a pint a day, had to be given to these slaves to prevent them from um, transforming their dysentery into, into, into death. There's a good deal on the physical uh, condition of the slaves uh, on the boarding of the ship um, and on their state of health during the voyage on the crawl crawl, the deep fear of smallpox that everyone had on these ships and on having to live in the hold of a ship with diseased and dying slaves and in that same space being next to tubs of human excrement. So death came very quickly in these conditions. It was, and I quote Wyville, it was almost like sheep rot, he said before a commission, and I quote him, that when you get it amongst the slaves, you can do nothing for them. Death would come very quickly in this terrible hold of the ship. So the fate of the progressor put a break on the experiment with settling liberated slaves at the Cape. This terrible scandal that arose out of the Progresso brought about a, a shrinking in the number of slaves that were brought to the Cape, and those slaves went rather to Sierra Leone or to Santa Helena um, or even to those rival slave ports of Havana and Rio de Janeiro, which were also taking um, liberated slaves, a very few. And this limited the role of the mixed commission of the Cape established in 1843. Its role really became after that 
to be the eyes and ears of the Foreign Office in the South Atlantic. So this wonderful material on the slave trade in the Atlantic in the office, in the archives of the Mixed Commission in Kew Gardens. So it was the eyes and ears of the Foreign Office rather than being any kind of effective international court aimed at suppressing the slave trade, as was the case with the Mixed Commission in Freetown. So let me conclude. Dozens of slave ships visited the Cape during the second British uh, occupation, and the documentation certainly exists to trace their movements in and out of Table Bay or neighboring Simons Bay. What is more difficult is to trace the everyday life on these slave ships, particularly in the early years when officials showed very little concern about the conditions of the slaves in these ships. <clears throat> the case of the Progresso, I think, allows us exceptionally to follow life on a slave ship. But as I have tried to point out, this evidence was produced in a very specific context and needs to be read with care. Hill's book should not serve as a generic work on the horrors of the slave trade. But if read carefully, it can tell us a great deal about life on board a slave ship in the mid-1840s, when Mozambique was exporting 30,000 slaves annually by that time. And, perhaps most importantly, it can tell us a great deal about a tiny part of the stream of humanity that was making its way to the Cape, while the vast majority of that stream was making its way to Brazil and to Cuba. Thank you. Thank you very much.